Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. A quick note for listeners of episode, I'm going to say 12, I think, about the Americas. Um, yes, when that we... was definitely 12, the one we did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, because we just posted it online, and so I re-listened it. And I never actually got around to mentioning that the Lakota name, the Battle of Greasy Grass, um, is used side by side today by non-native scholars as well um, for the Battle of Little Bighorn. Uh, we got sidetracked by the fact that the name that non-native scholars no longer use, of course, um, has been punned upon in a Janesville custard, frozen custard place known as Custard's Last Stand. <laughs> yes. Um, but then, yes, I somehow did not ever mention that the, the Lakota name is, in fact, uh, the Battle of Greasy Grass, which is also the name of the river. The non-native name for the river is Little Bighorn, right? So non-native scholars, not, that being said, non-native scholars have frequently started to adopt the name the Battle of Greasy Grass as well. Um, so that has become a sort of known name and hopefully will eventually become sort of synonymous. Um, but I was going to say both of those names are known and used. Yes. But I never got around to mentioning um, the Lakota <laughs> name, the Battle of Greasy Grass, because we got sidetracked by custard, which is delicious. Yes. And I did mean to look up and see if, if that's a Wisconsin thing. I don't know. Is I've heard it's a Midwest thing. Maybe it's a Midwest thing. I don't thing. know. Frozen I don't custard. know if I ever had. Well, before we before we moved to Wisconsin, of course, we just went to like Baskin Robbins. Sure. Which has your sort of standard ice cream. So I don't know. But also I was whatever, eight. Right. So I wasn't really a, I wasn't really a gourmet. Right. Frozen custard's awesome, though. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I don't know. I like the. Regions have different types of frozen things that they like frequently. Mm -hmm. I like that water ice that they have in yes. Philadelphia. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, shaved, various types of shaved ice are big in various places. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't... I mean, I haven't been in much of the South, so so far I've only experienced really ice cream. <laughs> Which, you know, yeah. is of course not regional. But... Yeah, I'm sure that there's something specific to the South. Mm -hmm. um, I just do not know what it is. Yeah. We used to go to, I don't know what it was called, like Red Bean Mountain was what we called it in China um, when I studied there, which is like shaved ice and then like sweet syrup or something. Beans. Sweet beans, yes. Yeah, red beans and like yes. other types of flavored syrup and like. You know, the one there'd be one person who was like mm -hmm. really good at ordering, yes. so they would just go and be like that and that and that, yep. that, that, that. Yep. and then you know you're pointing works you're in like, every country. Yeah. Yes. I will say shout out to New York, Chinatown, but also Pittsburgh. I want to give a shout out to theirs. Of course, Chicago, obviously San Francisco. Okay, I've been to many, all delicious. <laughs> but yes, Chinese pastries, uh, because of friends, not just friends I have who are Chinese, but I mean. Really, really delicious. But yeah, um, with and without egg yolks, depending, right? Around the new year. Yes. I sort of had always liked them, but I didn't really find out what they were <laughs> until I had friends who were Chinese who I asked. Yeah. Yeah. And red bean, lotus seed paste, various other beans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all very delicious. Yep. 
And of course, now it's now it's a very, very common flavor. So you see it, you know, now they tell you <laughs> on things. Um, but yes, you'd get packages that I could not read, <laughs> but were always very delicious. Yes. Yeah. And because I'm not allergic to anything, I never had to worry. I will also put that mm-hmm. out. Like, that's a... Yeah. Some people have to worry about it's these things. It's a lot things. easier to play the buy random things at a Chinese grocery store game. Yes. Um, if you're not worried about allergies. Right. Um, but it's know. also good if you know some of, like, the few characters for different types of meat if you're like me and you're a vegetarian. Right. Although, I got hung up one time on, like, cat ear mushrooms. Ooh. Um, because you see the character, you see a cat ear character right. and you're like, wait, what? Because <laughs> I don't think, I don't remember, um, I don't think I knew the word for mushroom. Ah. But I knew the word for ear. Right. And I was like, wait, mm, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yep. That's awesome. But Oh, yeah. the mushrooms. Oh, I could go on and on about mushrooms. I love them so much. There's so many kinds. They're yes. so good. They're okay. also good. Well, anyway, we got yeah, to talk about to theater, move though. To other stuff. Yes. Yes. <laughs> all right. We so, can cut the part about all the time. Chinese pastries. Yes. But yes, my yeah. my theory is though, if you see a dessert, you should just try it. Like if you're not allergic to things, I want. Yeah. You should just eat it, and you can worry later. Like, oh, winter melon. Right. That's it. I forgot that one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Yeah, I had winter melon flavored soft drinks in some places, which is oh, that's weird. Yeah. I or mean, like everything has been grass into a jelly. <laughs> yeah. Um. No. Anyway, um, this is not reminisce about the time we accidentally ordered drinks with egg yolks in them at, in China. Um, ah. That's. I mean, you get them here a too. Story right? for another for t- hangovers or yeah, whatever. yeah. Supposedly, no, it was. I mean. <laughs> my friend got something called like I think it was called a Green Angel, and it was kind of like minty colored. Uh-huh. But she started to stir it, and there was like an egg yolk bobbing in the top of oh, it. Oh yeah. Um, so it was like hiding. Yeah, I probably would just stir it in. <laughs> I mean, their drinks. I don't usually order them, to be fair, because I'm not as interested in alcohol with egg yolks. I mean, I, I haven't tried a lot of those drinks. Like I said, I know that mm-hmm. they're supposedly hangover cures or whatever. Um, but it's become... I've had a, the ones with egg white. Yeah. Where they shake it really hard. Right. Make it frothy. Um, but yeah, but some of them it's then... It's less weird than I thought it would be. Have sort of yolk... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a thing... <laughs> like, why not, I guess, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I... I don't know if I've ever had had one, actually, yeah. Um, but yeah. yes, bars over here definitely serve those things as well. Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so last time we talked about non-Christian theater traditions as well as Christian theater traditions and secular theater traditions. And I have to say that it was it was my fault that I summarized the question is like, what's the evolution of theater? Um, during the Middle Ages, and how did it go from, like, maybe religious theater to secular theater? Was the, Could we say that the evolution of secular theater was influenced by religion? Um, and so you set, you set me straight on evolution not being a great way to look at these things. Yes. This is partly because, this is mostly because, um, it has been frequently... Um, the term that gets used, right? So, mm-hmm. um, there's this sort of issue, <clears throat> you know, this is the thing. Evolution's such a great, fantastic, fantastic theory that is so clearly true for living things, right? But it is much less true for the things that living things create. 
Um, and there's this desire, though, to see things in that way, right? Because it's such a gorgeous, tidy way to see them. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, of course, actual biological evolution is not necessarily as tidy and everything as we think it is. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's this desire to sort of see things slowly leading into each other, right? Um, and if there's a sudden innovation, like we want to know where it came from, and we assume that like one person who is usually assumed to be male, had something to do with it, right? Genius. Genius invented this sure. thing. And then there was an innovation and it pushed us forward. But of course, evolution, you know, works brilliantly for biology, but not really for culture. Um, things do change slowly over time. Sometimes they change quickly. <laughs> mm -hmm. But things, right, culture is messy. And so that's really just the point, that there's so many influences and things come from so many directions. And peoples trade with each other. And suddenly you have materials that you didn't used to have. And you have art objects that people didn't see before. And right, so these things move around in all sorts of interesting ways. And it's actually good that we're talking about this again, because we're gonna, it's gonna be reintroduced as we talk about puppets, which is our main subject for today. Mm -hmm. Because they have certainly appeared in various places independently. But they have also moved and been taken to other locations uh, where they have sometimes shifted in various interesting ways. Um, there are places where you don't know if something appeared on its own and then was influenced by another culture that moved in or if the other culture brought it over originally. Right. Yeah. So all of these things are true, although it is tempting. And like I said, I think last time people s still want to teach culture frequently as though it is an evolution. Um, and it just isn't, right? And the thing is that sometimes you just have to say that you don't know where something came from. Um, or sometimes you just have to acknowledge that things aren't connected the way you think they were. So next time when we talk about religious theory, we'll get a little more into that. Mm -hmm. But definitely, when it comes to Western theater, <laughs> it is not true that the theater of sort of the Christian Middle Ages evolved out of religious theater. That is not true, right? Mm -hmm. um, it developed, which is a better word, um, separately, side by side. They mixed, they integrated, they influenced each other. But one did not sort of slowly evolve out of the other or even develop out of the other. And so that that's sort of the main, the main point. Um, and I think we sort of ended last time, um, just the two of us talking, about the fact that... <laughs> One of the big problems is actually the people who are seen as innovators. It's not their fault, mm -hmm. right? It's the scholars who come afterwards and look back at them and say, aha, these men were geniuses and they changed things forever. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, the singular genius. Yes, the singular genius. So in the case of France, uh, France did this very deliberately. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, first of all, picked up on neoclassicism. They're like, aha, we are the sort of, you know resurgence of classical culture, which was the best thing ever. And we're going to ignore the Middle Ages. They end up, of course, mm -hmm. providing us with the term, really, Middle Ages. Um, and we're going to... Wasn't... Hmm? Didn't Julius, Julius Caesar say that the people who lived in France were basically like barbarians? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Romans thought <laughs> everyone outside... they don't Romans have, was. like, stuff like soap or whatever to, yeah. to make them Golf. soft. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Gaul. I remember this Gallia is Stuvisian parties trace yes. sort of yes. business. Of course, some of Gaul are Germans, and some of them are French. Yes. Yeah. 
And of course, ultimately, you know, then you get Britain on the far end, just in the absolute, like, you know, the end of the, not actually the end of the known universe, but it might as well have been. Yeah. Right. If we're talking about a backwater at the time of Rome, from the perspective of Rome, of course, not from the yeah. perspective of those who were living in the British. No, Isles. I just, I just love but, the idea yeah. of these barbarians a thousand years later being like, yes, we are the true heirs. Oh, absolutely. To this. 100%. Beautiful empire. Yep. Yeah, well, they That's obviously ignore those things. Um, and to be fair, in a lot of ways, the French at that, you know, probably sort of felt that they were descended from the Romans who'd colonized and not from the people who'd been there. <laughs> you know, I think, I think that is frequently the way people see these things. Anyway. Yeah. So, uh, but yes, you're right. Absolutely. Of course. Right. Um, you know, England, which, as I said, was sort of the furthest backwater, um, and has now you know, of course, ended up taking over the globe for some time under the Victorian Empire. Mm -hmm. um, and compensating, you know, yeah, basically, right? Um, everyone compensates for something. Germany, of course, several attempts at taking over the world. And now yeah. they've kind of succeeded with the EU, um, yeah, you know, well. a benevolent, benevolent form, but nonetheless, right? Yeah. So this sort of interesting sense, right, of France really sort of throwing its hat in the ring here, right? Neoclassical, and this is the thing, what we think of as neoclassical theater, we also think of as classical theater, and that's a huge, 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 huge problem, right? So the neoclassical rules that the French mm -hmm. set out about the unities, right? So <laughs> I'm going to be very unfair. I want to apologize to all my friends who study this period and are specialists in this period, because I, I do love it. I love the playwrights. You can't not love Moliere. I just, I want to put that out. And Racine is extraordinary. Cornier, yes, Cornier is amazing. But <laughs> um, there is a tendency, really, to sort of view neoclassical rules, particularly for tragedy, less so for comedy, but particularly for tragedy, as a kind of injunction that nothing should ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> right? As rules that sort of just stop anything from happening on stage. Now, that is not fair. That is not fair. But these rules that we have, so unity of time, place, and action are the famous ones. The idea that the play should take place, you know, sort of in the time that it's being watched, but basically a 24-hour period. Um, that it should only take place in one location, because you know, we're sort of ignoring magic stagecraft here, where a stage mm -hmm. can be anything. Um, and then unity of action. So um, you have, you know, your set characters, your, your one major plot. Everything has to relate to it. And some extra side notes <laughs> of this uh, sort of theory of neoclassical theater um, is that violence should not take place on stage. And that is that is maybe one of the big ones, along with the unities. People assume that all of these things were actual rules for classical Greek theater. And they were not. Right? They are based on the Renaissance, early modern, same, same thing here, uh, the early modern French interpretation of Aristotle's poetics. But Aristotle wrote his poetics hmm. after Aeschylus, <laughs> Sophocles, and Euripides had all died. Right. And those are the dudes we've got. So I can guarantee that they are not writing their plays according to Aristotle's rules, because mm -hmm. mostly he wasn't alive yet, and also he definitely hadn't written the poetics. So I actually don't teach Aristotle and Plato <laughs> um, in, my, in the first half of my theater history class. I teach it in the second semester. 
at the very beginning of the second semester, um, because that's when their rules really start to apply to the theater we're talking about, right? Um, and they're not rules, by the way. Well, first of all, Plato hates theater. We've talked about him. Uh, but Aristotle's right. not writing rules, right? He's a fanboy critic. And he is writing his sense of what he thinks makes the best play, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the French really take this as like the laws of theater set out by God, Aristotle, right? Who, I mean, I'm willing to acknowledge that Aristotle was quite intelligent, perhaps even a genius. <laughs> and it is not his fault that this happened, right? Um, and we do get some extraordinary plays because of it. I don't deny that. But the French really draw a line between themselves and what came before. So all the sort of medieval sensibilities about theater, which are very, very messy, <laughs> um, disappear, and they sort of get run over. Um, that being said, France does like some of its medieval heritage. It pays attention to some of its medieval heritage. Um, so although there's a more purposeful change, um, they don't fully ignore it in the way English scholars tended to. And of course, English scholars ignored it because of Shakespeare. And the funny thing is that although Shakespeare is clearly not a neoclassical author by any stretch of the imagination, um, although he mm -hmm. does have a couple neoclassical plays, right? He writes a few where he tries out different aspects of the neoclassical rules. Uh, Comedy of Errors sure. is a great example. Titus Andronicus is another example. Um, he actually ends one of his one of his final plays is The Tempest, which, again, mm -hmm. you may notice follows the unities in a lot of ways, right? So he actually does, he's sort of interested in this, but he does not feel in any sense bound to those rules. Um, and of course, there's some really famous moments, right? As you like it, where we travel right from court, now I'm in the Forest of Arden, right? We just wander around um, the chorus, chorus and Henry V, right? Imagine the wood know yeah. doing all of these things. So he's, and in some ways, he's very specifically breaking those rules, right? Um, mm -hmm. But England, there were people in England who really believed in them and tried to carry them on, Ben Johnson. Um, but for the most part, <laughs> <laughs> England didn't care as much, right? England never mm -hmm. really cared. There's some people who did it, but as a whole, England didn't really care. That being said, right, Shakespeare, of course, yes, he's a genius. Um, at this point, although Shakespeare the man was British. Uh, he lived in England, right? Born, raised, died. Um, you know, possibly born and died on the same day. We don't know for sure what day he was born on, but he could have been born on the 23rd, right? He's um, mm -hmm. entered in the register on the 26th. So two or three days earlier seems reasonable. And of course, he dies on April 23rd, which is St. George's Day, patron saint of England. So it's all very poetic. Um, but yeah, 1564 to 1616. Um, but at this point, right, his importance in the world at large, it's sort of unfair to think of him as a specifically English playwright. Um, you can study him in English class. That's fine. Right. But you can also create an entire class of Shakespeare and never read sort of, you know, his English texts. Um, he's been mm -hmm. translated and adapted in just brilliant and extraordinary ways. Um, so, you know, I don't deny his place, obviously. I super love him. He's amazing. But... The problem is that he looms so large in British history when it comes to theater um, that scholars basically ignored everything that came before, which Shakespeare is, ironically, very closely tied to, right? Unlike the French, who did kind of try to separate themselves a bit. Um, of course, there's still things that they're tied to, but, you know, there was this sort of separation from the earlier sort of medieval religious themed theater. Mm -hmm. 
Shakespeare absolutely sort of hangs on to it in a lot of interesting ways. And he uses all sorts of things from all sorts of places, right? So we get characters from Commedia, like Falstaff, right? It's clearly a version of sort of the Brackard soldier. Um, we get mm-hmm. uh, aspects even of the of the passion plays, which, of course, were no longer allowed to be played in England by the time Shakespeare's writing plays. But the Henry VI, there's a famous, famous, famous sort of scene of... Queen Margaret, who's one of Shakespeare's fave characters, <laughs> she's in a lot of the mm-hmm. plays, right? She shows up again in Richard III. Uh, she's in Two and a Henry the Sixth. Yes, yeah. So she, she has great. She has great stuff to do in in Richard. Oh, fantastic! She's fantastic, and he likes yeah. her. He always likes her. I mean, she's brilliant. <laughs> That's why she's in Two and a Henry the Sixth. Um, but she has this amazing scene where she is killing um, <laughs> Richard, Duke of York, um, who of course is the father of Richard the Third. Who does and he of course never gets to be king, but then his his kids do, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But the scene of her killing him um, is very clearly sort of based on aspects of the crucifixion from the Passion Plays, um, and so mm-hmm. she gives him a, a paper crown, right, and all all this sort of stuff. Anyway, um, so there's this sort of mocking, and he's you know on this hill, and anyway, um, so. Shakespeare uses all this stuff from everywhere. I mean, whenever he found theater that he liked or theatrical elements that he liked, he used them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, because he sort of clearly <laughs> is set apart in many ways, um, scholars really just drew their own line that Shakespeare himself never drew, that nobody drew in England, really, right, uh, mm-hmm. between the early modern period and the medieval period. Um, and that is very unfair, because if we're going to talk about plays developing, um, Shakespeare does develop out of medieval drama. You know, mm-hmm. so do Moliere and Racine Cornet, of course. The Neo- they do also. I mean, things don't just disappear because you want them to. <laughs> but there is this really sort of interesting way in which um, scholarship in England just, like, threw the Middle Ages under the bus, right? And that has started to change you know, the past few decades, there's been a giant sort of shift, <laughs> um, an attempt mm-hmm. to reclaim the Middle Ages for theater, right? Not just for things like Chaucer. Um, and not just reclaim them, but really sort of value the sort of stagecraft and all of these things that they brought to England. And this really sort of um, high value that was placed on theater and performance um, that, of course, helps explain really where the professional companies ultimately come from. Right. That you can't. And Shakespeare himself, of course, ultimately is part of that milieu. Um, mm-hmm. And you you can't sort of ignore the fact that they ultimately exist because of England's sort of love of theater, ultimately, which really comes out of the Middle Ages. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You wouldn't have had professional troops otherwise for Shakespeare to f- join. Right. Sure. Anyway, so this is sort of the interesting aspect of that. There are also then, of course, some things that have really loomed large, which is to say that in England, the way theaters professionalized was a sort of on the apprentice system, um, the way many major craft guilds did. But while women do belong to other craft guilds, um, frequently what happens is things like um, somebody dies and their wife Somebody being the man, right? And a wife or a daughter or someone, right, um, takes over the shop, basically, right? Sure. And so women do belong to other guilds in a lot of cases, but because of the way theater apprenticeships worked, 
Um, women are not part of the professional stage in early modern England. They're part of the amateur mm-hmm. stage. They perform at court and things like that. They can perform sort of, you know, as part of amateur community theater, right? Uh, yeah. But they do not perform as part of the professional theater. Okay. There are some weird examples. I think we've mentioned Mal Cutpurse at one point, right? She shows yes. up on stage, right? So women do show up on stage. And traveling troops from France and Italy show up on stage, and they have women, right? Because women are part mm-hmm. of the professional troops on the continent. But because they're not part of Shakespeare's professional experience, and we all know mm-hmm. that, it has led a lot of people to believe that women didn't perform in the Middle Ages, period. Mm-hmm. Which is 100% not true. Even in England, it isn't true. It's certainly not true on the continent, where women absolutely did perform and were professionals. Um, and then, of course, as you start to travel around the world, we've discussed the fact, right, that in China, women absolutely could perform and even be the heads of troops. Um, in the Americas, women could potentially perform, um, certainly in India, right? So sure. women Japan. actually yeah, yeah, are performing a lot of places. Yes, Japan, the interesting thing is, so let's start getting into puppets. Yeah. In the early modern period, a woman invents kabuki, but women eventually get booted off the kabuki stage. So theater in Japan, actually similar to England, interestingly, there are all these weird parallels that Britain and Japan have that they sort of crash into each other in World War II. So women hmm. actually do tend to be booted off the Japanese stage entirely, is what happens. Um, because the Japanese traditions, the medieval traditions of no, which is the sort of dramatic, and mm-hmm. Kyogen is the sort of the comic variation on no, um, as well as the puppet theater, Bunraku, um, all of these do tend to be and really are officially all male. Right. So the professional troops for these are male. Um, And Kabuki, as I said, that women do get kicked off the stage. So then they also, right, those troops also then are all male. Um, So Japan is actually the other place where you do tend to have all male theater. Hmm. Um, But these are outliers. Because I was thinking, I think of of geishas, who I know that they Ah. do a lot of different types of like music and performance like that, and that some of the hostessing that they would do is like to make money to fund lessons, basically, music lessons or whatever. But I I guess they must have started somewhat um, later. Well, it's not even that necessarily, although yes, but also, um, no, I mean, that's why Kabuki started by a a woman, right? Women can Mm -hmm. be musicians and performers but they're not part of what we would call the professional Uh theater so this actually goes to our sort of conversation last time about theater versus performance um and that's Mm -hmm. definitely true in england as well (laughs) yeah so women aren't part of the professional stage in england women aren't part of the professional stage in japan Mm. so that's different women can have professions that are related Mm -hmm. but they aren't doing what we would call theater so they're not doing plays yeah, but yes, music and other types, yeah. similar types of entertainment, yes, um, but not theater. Yeah, we should definitely make this a topic of its own some other time, because I think that a lot of people have this impression that women never worked until, like, I right. don't know, World War Two. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, like, that right. is not true. Like, women have, have been working and earning money for, like, the entirety 100%. of history, so... Yeah. I think it's worth like looking at that yes. because I would I love know, to talk about women as yeah. a as a woman who herself works and who grew up with yeah. you know a working working female parent. Yep. I think it's 
important to yeah. talk about. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. hundred yes. percent. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's definitely a separate one because they're, you know, yeah. Okay. We'll leave that. There's a lot. <laughs> okay. Yes. But let's talk about Japanese puppets. Yes. Cause we've sort of worked our way through, um, we did. We worked our way through what China and India, I think, last time. <laughs> right? Yes, um, and we talked about sort of their forms of theater, so Chinese opera, mm-hmm. um, and then of course Sanskrit theater, which is we would sort of compare it in a lot of ways, which we you know shouldn't, but there are similarities with um, sort of romanticism, um, and romanticism was influenced by Sanskrit drama and literature. So, mm-hmm. all right. So here we go for Japan. Yes. Oh my God. I love puppets so much. And when I teach it, my students have to learn how to do some of this stuff. It's fantastic. Um, so, uh, Bunraku, um, is large scale. So these are puppets. They can be different sizes of large, but essentially probably the length of a couple feet. They can be a little smaller, a little bigger. Oh, wow. But that's, that's pretty big. But that's about, yeah. Um, and that's that they, you know, so they sort of range, but they're, you know, substantial. Uh, they're mm-hmm. three people puppet them. And the traditional sort of apprenticeship, you start on the feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you move to the left hand um, and then the right hand and the head. Hmm. And the theory essentially is that you spend sort of 10 years on each. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Which you might or might not, but in fact, last year, I'm going to say, although it might have actually been in the fall, who Mm -hmm. is to say at this point, because time (laughs) has no meaning. (laughs) Yes. But, you know, somewhere between a year and nine months ago and something, a, the sort of one of the main professional, like old professional Bunraku companies, um, in Japan. And I will say, so these days, um, it is still more or less true that women are not part of the traditional uh, Bunraku no Kyogen and mm-hmm. Kabuki troops. But there are plenty of troops, theater troops in Japan that do include women and do plays in the sort of style no Bunraku, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, Kabuki. So women do perform these days. Absolutely. Um, but the traditional troops are families. And this is true for all of these troops. So we're really talking about puppetry, which is uh, Bunraku. Uh, but it's true as well for No and Kyogen that we'll get to later. Um, and for Kabuki, which is early modern, that the roles, first of all, are sort of set out. So there's the actor who plays all the leads. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. um, the actor who plays the sort of lead female roles. Right, secondary male roles, secondary female roles, etc. And these are inherited. So there's sort of the family name, and then their son. Although it, sometimes you adopt like a nephew or something, <laughs> um, you know, if your son doesn't want to do this, but it's but it stays basically within the family and it's inherited. And so you train, 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 and when you are ready. There's you sort of have a whole ceremony um, and you will take on the new name and that doesn't necessarily happen immediately. Right. So um, one of the leading Kabuki actors currently, his father died and he didn't immediately take over the name. Um, you you know, you usually give it a couple of years because in your sort of coming out 
party, essentially, um, you will play all of the lead roles that your family's famous for. So different families have different wow. repertoires. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so you'll, you'll play them all. So I think he had like seven, he did 17 roles or something. So you really have to prepare, right? Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you do it in like a month or something. And then that's sort of your big, you know, and then you get to take over. Um, now he's really, really interesting because he has a son and a daughter and he's training both of them, which is great. Oh, and nice. he, yeah. And he sort of clearly feels that this is one of those things that probably needs to change, which is say that women need to be able to perform um, if Japan is really to keep its culture alive in a lot of ways, right? This is a very, yeah. very traditional art form. Um, and the same way that you could say, like, Western opera has updated itself and changed mm -hmm. in various ways, right, to stay relevant, um, that everything needs to have a little bit of flexibility, Right. And so one of the other things he's done is like turn Star Wars into Kabuki plays. So he has added to the what? repertoire. Yes. Oh, my God. We'll we'll link. Uh, CBS <laughs> did a great thing on him before COVID started. OK, I'm going to say um, maybe just before. Ugh, I'm getting a little messed up here. But anyway, um, somehow that feels like it would work. Right. Like Star Wars. There's already something it is Kabuki. Kabuki. They're samurai. About, yeah. Yeah. They are samurai. Yeah, you know, he didn't want to say that. He never wanted to admit it, but that is a hundred. It's yes, it's a Western <laughs> style instead of like right taking spaghetti westerns, right? Italians yes. doing, you know, cowboys in America. This is Western doing samurai, etc. Right in space. Yes, yes samurai in space. Um, but you know, not wanting to sort of be appropriating someone else's culture, etc., etc., etc. He always absolutely 100% refused to say that that's what he was doing, but mm -hmm. that is 100% what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. And he, of course, Lucas. Yeah. Um, I think he's actually finally admitted it. I think we got long <laughs> enough because uh, there was a whole discussion of, I think, the hair. Was it the news? I mean, the, huh, the middle series, I guess. So the mm -hmm. one, two, and three, supposedly. Um, I think that uh, something, something like, was it those or was it the more recent ones where they were finally sort of allowed to wear their hair back a little bit like in a ponytail the way samurai sort mm -hmm. of did and mm. some of the and the yeah, some of the, the new ones yes because like in in rogue one there's a guy who genuinely does look like he's a samurai yes and i think that was it and some of the actors who'd been in some of the previous ones came out and sort of said look at that we always said that that's what we were supposed to look like and you never let us do it and now you've clearly admitted that that's <laughs> what you're supposed to look like. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. So there you are. Yes, so it's a perfect match. Um, but anyway, so modernizing a little bit. Um, but uh, Boon, the idea is, right, so they're all sort of inherited. The same is true for Bunraku. And the mm -hmm. company that was at Lincoln Center recently, um, one of the lead had just taken over the family name. And... He, it's said in the book how long he'd been apprentice. Um, and it was 30 something years. Not apprentice, but I mean, essentially apprentice. You know, you start yeah. performing very young. You know, you start performing very quickly on the feet and then you move up, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it's all technically training. And the musicians, uh, so usually, uh, the shamisan, which is the, oh, it, it's lute. It's sort of lute like, mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, we will put some clips. It's a very distinctive sound for a stringed instrument. Those players are, of course, also traditionally men, although there are women now who are masters of the shamisan, of course, but those 
and women have always played it, but again, right, the traditional mm-hmm. sort of professional uh, place was for men. Um, and again, in, in there are cases which those families also the sort of you inherit the title. Um, and the same thing can be true for sort of the narrators. So for Bunraku, the puppet theater, um, the, there's a chanter who essentially who chants the story while the puppets act it out. Right. Oh. And the so the narrator similarly, right, is similarly trained. So mm-hmm. everybody has been apprenticing their whole lives together, basically, right? And the generations kind of take over together. Um, and there was a, someone else who'd just taken over um, as well and inherited his family name um, and after a sort of similarly long period of time. Um, but anyway, so everyone trains for decades, basically, before you get to take over. And the puppets, right, you get so three people on each puppet. Um, there might be some minor puppets uh, who do not get all three people, but the major characters always get the three people, and they're all in black with black hoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sense is sort of right that they are to be read as invisible on stage. Um, and it's an incredible, obviously, right? I mean, you think of you train that long to do it; it's really extraordinary. It's just an extraordinary yeah. form of puppetry. Um, and so it developed at the same time as Kabuki. So Bunraku also develops really in the early modern period. Um, and they have a very similar repertoire of plays. Most plays that there are, well, most plays that are done Bunraku also are done Kabuki and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But not only that, there are a lot of plays that may have been written originally for the puppet theater that are also done as Kabuki plays and plays that were maybe originally written for the live Kabuki theater that are also done as puppet plays. And sometimes the performance techniques um, will sort of swap over, right? Hmm. So um, maybe like a puppet, you know, f- gets f- flown out at the end, something happens, right? Well, now the kabuki actor also has to get flown out at the end, right? <laughs> um, so the, these sort of interesting things that happen in these in these instances. But anyway, so that's the Japanese puppet theater. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. Um, if you have a chance to see it, see it, you know. Mm-hmm. I will say another quick comment, because I just want to be able to link to this. Uh, and this is an American puppeteer, Basil Twist, who's amazing. Um, and he has a show called Dogugayashi, which is a form of theater from Awaji, specifically in Japan. Um, and it's essentially um, what would have been sort of the changing of the scenery f- for the puppet theater, largely, became its own art form. And it's essentially these sliding panels. They slide in and out. And he went over and sort of learned it and had created a whole show about it, doing it, with some sort of modern innovation. So, like, he has a screen at the very back where sometimes you get projections as well and things like that. Um, But it's really incredible. Um, And it was unclear in some ways if it was going to disappear sort of after World War II or stick around. And it has stuck around, um, luckily, you know. Um, But he has this version that he's created uh, mm-hmm. and it's really incredible, but it's also a sort of reminder of, for example, um, right. This is the Japanese variation on changing scenery. Um, and of course the West also has had that in the past, although we haven't necessarily maintained it. I have been at shows where the changing of the scenery has gotten applause. I want to say that, mm-hmm. but there are a couple Baroque theaters that still exist in Europe. Um, from around 1766, both of them, actually. One in Sweden and one wow. in the Czech Republic. Okay. And we'll link to videos of those theaters where you can see both the equipment 
behind the scenes, all these wooden gears and pulleys, and, right? And then you see this on stage, um, the the panels shift, and it's really mm-hmm. incredible. Okay. <laughs> you know, but Baroque theater, that used to be sort of the point, right? To watch the scenery change, um, mm-hmm. right? Was its own sort of amazing technology, you know? And now we sort of know it's all controlled by computers, and we're impressed if something really amazing happens. You know, I remember as a kid, all the sort of stuff about, like, Miss Saigon had a helicopter, right? Um, oh. So things like that impress us, but we're maybe less impressed otherwise by by scenery a lot of the time, which is unfortunate. Um, it can be amazing. And like I said, I have I have seen it get applauses, but mm-hmm. um, it's a sort of reminder that everything is sort of important. Um, but, you know, uh, I would say Basil Twist is right. That's its own sort of form of, of puppetry, right? Object manipulation. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that's Bunraku in Japan. All right, shadow puppets. This is probably one of the things we think of um, when we talk about puppets. It's sort of the original puppet that everyone did. You like figure out how do you make a dog barking, right, in a yeah. flashlight, um, stuff like that, right? Bunny ears or whatever, the bunny going around, and then the wolf barking, mm-hmm. and you know, yeah. Um, okay, so shadow puppets can, of course, be done with one person. Um, the same person can, like, put up the screen, operate the puppets behind the screen, and have one light source. Um, mm-hmm. These days, that's especially true, because the light source is probably a light bulb. Um, back when it was a lantern, you sometimes it was sometimes difficult for one person to also tend the lantern, right? You sometimes mm-hmm. didn't need another person to sort of tend the lantern. Um, but nowadays, right, you can have a single light source that you can tend, and you can also voice the puppets. You're behind the screen. You just change your voice, right? Yeah. Like a voice actor. So these are two-dimensional puppets, right? The light source comes from the back onto the screen, right? And the puppets are behind the screen. It projects through the puppets. Mm-hmm. So there are forms of shadow puppet theater where you just see the shadow of the puppet and they can be cut in really interesting patterns so that you see yeah. not just the silhouette, but also all these intricate things within that sort of, you know, show the pattern of their clothing. Some of them are thin enough, leather, that you can actually see the painted color shine through, mm-hmm. right? The way you would if they were made of like plastic, except they're not, right? So they're both kinds, right? They're puppets that are largely silhouettes, um, but maybe with sort of intricate designs cut into them and puppets where you can see the colors shine through. So both of those exist. I want to give my favorite example. I think we've talked about him before, but this is, of course, Ibn Daniel. Yes. Who we have talked about. So we'll give him a brief overview. Um, he's 1248 to 1310. He's born in Mosul, Iraq, uh, but he flees to Cairo, um, Egypt, because mm-hmm. of... Kublai Khan, I believe, and his troops, <laughs> right? I mean, if you're going to flee, that's a good reason. Yes, absolutely, right? And again, right, he ends up reaching Cairo, right, the sort of one sultan, Sultan Baybars, who uh, defeats both the Crusaders and the Horde, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a good place to be, Cairo. So, Ibn Daniel becomes very well educated, right? Uh, but he's interested because he's, he is Iraqi, right? He's mo- from Mosul. He, and he very, very much identifies as being from Mosul. And there's a lot of stuff in his plays, uh, that sort of refer to, um, the hills sort of of Mosul and, um, his identity with that. So, you know, he is an immigrant in Cairo and that's definitely part of his identity, but he becomes very well educated. We're not quite sure how because he sort of shows up as a teenager, fairly young, you know maybe 13 or something even, um, but becomes very well educated. His classical Arabic ends up being incredible, right? So he is very, very well educated. Um, he also becomes an eye doctor. 
Well, which is, yeah, you know, he writes some incredible, like, lyric poetry, classical poetry, all the stuff. But we are concerned right now with the three shadow puppet plays that he writes, which are triple X rated, at least. <laughs> but they're shadow puppets. So are they? Right. And they are satires, right? And of course, he's Muslim playwright, writing these sort of very, very, very strong satires about religious hypocrisy and mm -hmm. class hypocrisy and all types of hypocrisy, right? So they're really sort of interesting. Um, and they also tend to include a really diverse group of characters, right? Which is also sort of interesting. Um, because he's commenting on the diversity around him, the diversity in Cairo, but also, of course, his own status um, as an immigrant, basically, right? Looking at life around him and what he sort of sees, right? So these, right, so these are very adult shadow puppet plays, right? These are high, high, high level satire. So we tend to think of puppet plays as for kids. And even when it's a very serious art form, I mean, you know, Bunraku... Of course, children enjoy it, but definitely also mm -hmm. adults. I mean, this is an incredible art form. Yeah. But that can also be true for shadow puppets, right? We don't think of them that way, maybe, but they can be for adults, right? Mm -hmm. So that's him and Daniel. Obviously, probably the ones that people are most familiar with um, are the Wayang. Wayang is sort of theater, right? In, in mm -hmm. Java, Indonesia. Um, and so... We have, um, you know, a wide, wide, wide range of types of <laughs> um, puppet theater and also other forms of theater. But the one that everyone knows the best, uh, Wayang Kulit, is similarly, right? Shadow puppet theater, leather puppets. This one, it is mostly the silhouette. And it's been around since the 800s. And there are sort of references to it probably at least as early as sort of 860. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, definitely... Yeah, definitely by 930. <laughs> yeah, because in 860, there's this sort of old Javanese charter that mentions three different types of performers. Um, and one of them is described later. Um, so not it isn't described in this document, but um, a couple hundred years later, it's described as leather mm -hmm. shadow puppets. So... You know, the assumption is that that is what it meant in 860 as well, particularly because in 930, there's a document that says, that specifically calls mm -hmm. it Yang. So this is pretty clearly, you know, it starts really early. <laughs> um, and it's Shadow Puppet Theater. It's incredibly famous. Um, you know, we'll certainly link to this. But this is the one probably everybody knows, right? Uh, and you tend to get Hindu epics, uh, but also local sort of you know, adaptations of legends and various cultural, famous cultural events and things like this. Um, also, of course, accompanied by music, right? Gamelan, which is sort of percussive, but um, not not as percussive in the sense of drums, which is what we think of as percussion, um, but more like, what do you call them? Like bells or, you know. Yeah, the, the other types of things, right? Per paraphernalia that the percussionists get assigned. yes. Is there a catch-all term for those? Yes. So this is really important. I used to play xylophone yeah. in a marching band. I should um, know that. Right. Yeah. Well, we also we just call it all percussion, right? But um, but that does not delineate fairly the a number of yeah. um, sounds that it can make, <laughs> right? So yes, a mm -hmm. wide wide variety of of sounds. So you know, and this is Indonesian generally, but it really is known mm -hmm. as Java Javanese essentially, right? This is sort of the you know, 
cultural center of what we're talking about. So I do want to mention, though, that in addition to these, that there's some other really interesting forms of puppetry here. So there's a Wyangolik, which is three-dimensional puppets. So these are not shadow puppets. These okay. are three-dimensional wooden rod puppets. And it's it may have arrived from somewhere else, like China. Mm-hmm. It's not clear, right? That's one of those moments, as I said, it's it may have arrived from somewhere else, <laughs> but also may have arisen there. Right? There are plenty of forms of puppetry. There's no reason that people couldn't have decided they were going to do three-dimensional mm-hmm. puppets, right? So that is a form of puppetry that also exists. And then there's a- another form of shadow puppet, um, Wyanclitic, that uses wooden puppets instead of leather puppets. So that's also um, another element. So all of these things are sort of important aspects of the puppetry that exists. Um, they do also have dance drama, which is something that we're going to talk about next time. Uh, but there is a form of dance drama as well, um, where the sense is sort of that humans... This is why I also brought up the connection between Bunraku and Kabuki, right? The live theater, the puppet theater. So Waiing Huang is a version of theater where humans... Mm-hmm. It's essentially a dance drama, but the idea is sort of that the people are the puppets, mm. right? So it's definitely not shadow theater. Right. But it does include masks um, and sort of very elaborate costumes. Right. So there's that sort of similarity with the puppet theater, but it's a form of dance drama, really. Yeah. So these are all sorts of forms of of shadow puppet theater (laughs) that exist. India, which I, you know, mentioned, except I was not talking about India. India does also definitely have shadow puppets. Are they related to Javanese um, shadow puppets? We do not know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they could be related. They could have arisen separately. Hard to know. So, um, but one of the interesting things that you also get in India is uh, Tolu Bomalada, which is leather puppets, also Hindu epics, right? But some of these can be very big, can be human-sized, basically, people-sized puppets. Um, and this one uses multiple light sources, and one person gets one character because you're basically controlling it yourself. I mean, it's the sort mm-hmm. of your size, right? And there's sort of, um, and you control it. And these are thin enough that you can see the colors that they're painted. Hmm. Right? So it shines through and it's colorful as the light shines through them. Yeah. Um, and the, the person in this one, the person playing the puppet is the person who's, or performing the puppet. Puppeteering the puppet uh, is the person probably who is saying the lines for that character. And I should add that women absolutely do this today. And, you know, um, so again, right, you you do have female performers in this one. But yeah, so that's sort of, um, that's an interesting variation. In India, we we also tend to think of shadow puppets, I think, is small, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Um, And in this case, they're not, they're very big. All right. A fun variation. That you brought up. Oh, yes. Would you like to mention? Oh, well, okay. So the Vietnamese water puppets, which in Vietnamese is called Mua Roi Nuok, there's not a ton known about their origins. Um, it seems like they were already sort of enjoyed at court as like court performances uh, by like the early 1100s. They have some records. So water puppets, I mean, like they're they're puppets made out of wood, and it's kind of hypothesized that they originated in rural areas where 
people would have like flooded rice paddies that they could um, use the use the you know this little body of water basically as a stage to do puppet shows. And so you know it probably existed for some time before it moved into the courtly arena. Um, the puppets get more complex, like they could you know spit water and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it it's really cool. We'll definitely link to some stuff. <laughs> it's really cool. It's neat yeah. stuff. I think some of the some of the you know the stories that they perform are like really traditional stuff. Legends about you know some. I'm gonna repeat the legend that I think I was told, and I'm my translation skills are not necessarily great, but it's like you know um, a. There's a sword that has to be returned by a king after a battle, and like a magical tortoise um, takes it, sort of thing. I, I think coincidentally that there might be an actual lake in Hanoi that is sort of associated with that legend. Awesome. But anyway, so yeah, so that there's like the performers basically are waist deep in water often when they're doing these performances. Um, nowadays, I guess they wear wetsuits, uh, <laughs> because, yeah, there was a point in time when they would, I don't know, do various, do various things to try to prevent, um, hypothermia, including, like, drinking nukmam, which is fish sauce. Yeah. Um, yes. it was thought to prevent them from catching colds, but anyway, Yeah. The puppets can be, like, up to 10 pounds and 40 inches tall. Um, different, you know, different parts of them will move, so. Yes. It's pretty cool. Hey, anything can float, of course, if it's made right. So. Yes. And these yep. are made from wood. As we know, floats. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you, Monty Python. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Um, Yeah. It's a really cool variation. And also, of course, you know, theater and water is not unknown. Um, you know, the Romans like to flood things and yeah. create naval battles. and um, So it's, yeah, why not? Yeah. I do want to point out, you know, some people say this may have come from China to Vietnam. And other people say this originated in Vietnam and then moved to China. Yep, these are the problems. Yes. <laughs> Always. <laughs> yes. China and Vietnam have kind of a long and... Antagonistic uh, history. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That's a yes. good word for it. So in, in their defense, like, it's a very it's a very traditional art form, and it persists to this day. And it's always been really popular, apparently. Awesome. And of course, they do it with, like, music and stuff yeah. like that. So No, it's fantastic. I mean, who doesn't love stuff in water? I feel like that's... Right. That's a thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right, our final puppet sort of series for the moment, um, for people who are wondering about Punch and Judy, they might show up when we talk about Canada, but they're, of course, slightly more modern. Yeah. Um, instead, we're going to Turkey, um, Cargos and Hajivat, which are very well known, right? Uh, Cargos is sort of a renowned character throughout not just Turkey, but the former Ottoman Empire. So also Greece and surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. And it was so Turkey is presumably in this case where this originated. Yes, but it definitely spread throughout the Ottoman Empire. Um, and so today it's, you know, sort of Bosnia and Herzegovina, 
um, Greece, right, a lot of these areas have these same characters and really a lot of the same sort of material, uh, but may have changed it a little bit for their local sort of interest. So essentially, um, it's probably from sort of 1300, maybe before, it's documented for sure by the early 1500s, but does seem to have already been around. Um, again, probably one of those things where um, it is unclear, you know, when people start doing things in marketplaces, you don't always get them written down right away, right? Which is, yeah, makes things problematic. You don't know where it came from. This is another one of those questions. Did it come from Java, from Wyang Kulit? Or, you know, essentially, Cargos is generally, right, a shadow puppet similarly, although you you can frequently see his colors. Um, and sometimes he's not. I mean, at this point, he's a puppet. You know, he can come in many forms. He's a recognizable puppet. But he is usually a shadow puppet. This is how he originated. Um, and in something that is similar to Wyankulit, so there's the question of <laughs> if it traveled to Turkey from Indonesia, or did it originate in Turkey, unclear, mm -hmm. right? So we do again have that question. Um, but Cargos himself represents sort of the illiterate public, <laughs> um, the masses, right? Um, and Hajivat mm -hmm. is the educated class. In the Greek version, it used to be um, that Hajivat was actually the educa educated Turkish character, right? So he was sort of for the state, right? The Ottoman mm -hmm. Empire. Um, but... These days, um, he tends to be Greek as well, and just sort of more of a, um, you know, state-conforming Greek character. <laughs> um, and again, right, so then Karagos is, of course, the character of the people, and it has to do with, you know, how he messes around and what happens, right? Um, and he's mm -hmm. a very, 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 very well-known character. Um, there are Similarities frequently made, right? Um, Punch in Punch and Judy, which is why I brought that up. Uh, similarly, right? He is this character who sort of represents the yeah. common person, right? Um, and so you have that idea, right, of puppets very, very clearly, um, even though they can be just silly or farcical or all of these things. Again, there is obviously, obviously, obviously a political overtone to this, right? And mm -hmm. undoubtedly a uh, sort of commentary on a satire of class, right? Um, various types of, right, state control, um, all of these sorts of questions that puppets, in a lot of ways, because of course, things that an actor might get in trouble for saying on stage, a human, a live human actor, right? Mm -hmm. If you're hiding behind a puppet, <laughs> right, nobody sees your face, it's the puppet saying it. Right. And there's an element of that in Ibn right. Daniel as well. Right. Um, that, y you know, can you get in trouble for something that you are not the one saying? Right. Is the puppet saying it? Right. Not you. Right. And so mm -hmm. there there is absolutely that sort of element. Um, and there's something really interesting about this, because I do think this is something that in the U.S. specifically. So this isn't even Western. <laughs> right. This is just more in the U.S. Um that we have a tendency to sort of, um, you know, look down on certain art forms that we think of as, for example, childish for children mm -hmm. without recognizing the ways in which they have been used historically, first of all, right? Yeah. 
and secondly, the great potential they have, right? Um, there are, of course, some exceptions. So Bread and Puppet Theater, um, that does these huge sort of puppets. They're, they're sort of most famous for these huge puppets that they would do for protest and activism. And of course, people still do use puppets for those things. But the idea of puppets in general, you assume a puppet show is going to be for kids, right? And I will say a couple of years ago, um, there is at the University of Richmond, a sort of institute that, um, Balinese, specifically, I think it's maybe specifically for music, um, but they did bring a mm-hmm. puppet show and all the students sort of played the music and they performed it. They do this sort of regularly, but the traditional puppet show, most, it is a traditional story. It's right. It is always a traditional sort of Hindu story or is usually, I mean, I don't know if it always is, but it has been <laughs> recently. Um, and that is, of course, the traditional format. But just because something is a traditional story, um, honestly, there are a lot of traditional stories from the no New Testament, you know, depending if you did like revelations, there's some, some violence and stuff, but definitely the Old Testament. There are some things that are not appropriate for kids. Yes. Right? <laughs> a lot of things, honestly. Um, and so in this one, you know, the whole performance is like an hour. There was one moment that was not appropriate for children. The people in front of us were quite shocked, but, and I mean, it was, you know, even Daniel would have laughed. Come on. But, um, yeah. you know, but I mean, you know, it's one of those interesting things that you were so sort of accustomed. Well, you know, puppets are for kids. Oh, well, it's a traditional sort of, you know, religious story. Mm-hmm. Must be for kids. And of course, that also says something about the way in which <laughs> we tend to water down our own stories, right? Yes. <laughs> um, you don't get a lot of yes. like, you know, David and Bathsheba whatever you know um right <laughs> so you can do david right. and goliath right but, uh the rest, the of, rest his of his exploits are main is a yeah. little bit yeah um so there yeah there is this sort of very interesting reminder of the ways in which um it, it we are prone to forgetting right or to not having known or yeah. you know to not having thought about Right, the history, the possibilities, right? Um, Yeah. And it's unfortunate, because puppets can be... Of course, they're tons of fun. Kids should love puppet shows. Muppets. Um, But of course, even the Muppets, the Muppets, originally, were largely sort of for adults. They're satiric. They're, you know, vulgar. Mm -hmm. They're all of those things. They weren't for little kids, right? Sesame Street... um, you know, was very specific and is not where the Muppets originated. Right. So, um, yeah. So this sort of interesting reminder, I think of the ways in which these things sort of play out, um, and these cultural art forms, their importance and the ways in which, um, you know, it's not that we don't still appreciate them, but there's such a wider range of things we could appreciate them for. Mm -hmm. Yes. So next time we will get more into women and physical comedy, we'll talk a lot about physical comedy and dance drama. More physical s- stuff, but drama instead of comedy. <laughs> yes. Nice. It's because theater's okay. my thing, so we're going slowly through the theater. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And religion. We'll get more into religion next time. Cool. Let me think. And this time we talked a lot about food, but we'll edit some of that out, so we won't talk as much about yeah, it. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I feel like we might actually be coming in close to... close. Closer to a tidy hour on this one with editing, so awesome. that will be lovely. Yay! Um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to 
make myself some notes about that. Yes. Anyway, I don't think we have any big announcements. By the time this episode goes live, hopefully if you check the website under citations, we should have um, a partially compiled bibliography available for um, everyone to look at. We're sort of rounding up books that we have recommended, um, especially academic treatises, yes. uh, medieval texts that have come up frequently, and uh, also I'll put all the stuff on decolonization and colonization and other random philosophical things that came up. Um, I'll put those all in there in case you know you're interested in checking those out. Um, I promise not to like include links to Gravity's Rainbow or Ulysses or whatever. Um, I'm saying not drawing a hard line. <laughs> I mean, if you want to buy them, if I well, if I the people can Google those, right? Oh, you like, can. if I wanted to recommend, if I if I turned this into the Emily recommends books podcast, we would never get done. This is true. Um, that's fair. I mean, but you know, yes, <laughs> yeah, that's a danger of being a former librarian, I guess. Ooh, yes. Never, you never get done with like the. Oh, you might like this. Okay, right. <laughs> uh, the read, the read alike uh, type of Yay. situation. So, um, other than that, you are more than welcome to drop us a line uh, via our website or um, via Facebook. We love to hear from our listeners, and we will hopefully work your question into a forthcoming episode. Um, these episodes, uh, the last one and this one and the next one will all have been inspired by actual listener questions. Yes. So, uh, you know, you may not just get like a single word answer. You may get <laughs> episodes. a really, really long answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Depending on how you, on how you ask right. a question. Um, yeah. and we're going to have to have a separate episode in the future on music, which was part of the question, which mm -hmm. we really haven't addressed. Yeah. Because that's its own thing. Yeah. But I do want to mention Bardcore. Okay. Yes. Okay. Bardcore is this woman who plays um, modern rock, I don't know, rock and roll pop music songs. Yes. Let's call them pop music on traditional medieval yeah. instruments. But it's become sort of a genre. And the woman we're referring to is Hildegard von Blingen. Listeners of this show okay, will have good name. heard of Hildegard von Bingen, of course, which is where the name... <laughs> yes, inspired by, which yes. is a brilliant... I mean, who wouldn't you name yourself after? Yes, Hildegard. Right. Um, but there are other people apparently doing this now as well, and bardcore is becoming a, a genre. So All I right. do want to throw that out there. So <laughs> All right. We'll put a link to some <laughs> yes. of the uh, signal pieces yes. in the just notes. Just to hold you over case. until we get to yes. actual musical Until episode. we can talk about... Actual music, yes. yeah. Yes. And it's, you know, it's true that, like, a lot of the traditions that we talk about are still being played with today. And it's not just, like, you know, tourists going through to see water puppets in Vietnam. It's all over the place. Yes. Things from the Middle Ages are still super relevant. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. So, until next time, everybody stay healthy, keep fighting, and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff. 
performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.